0: I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Katie Hill is a social entrepreneur, a TED fellow and a global leader with the World Economic Forum. Katie solves problems that impact billions of people. Katie took a year off between high school and college to live in Nepal. She began college knowing she wanted to work on issues of global poverty, and economic development. After graduating from Stanford, Katie joined Acumen and lived in India for four years, where she focused on energy, water, and agriculture investment. Katie shares with us her inspiring journey from living in Nepal and India, and then returning to Stanford to complete an MBA and master's in environmental resources. Most recently, in 2013, she joined Apple in the Silicon Valley. Building on her core interests and strengths in leadership, product innovation, and sustainable investing, Katie set out to convert Apple's entire supply chain to renewable energy. Earlier this year, Katie quit a job she loved at Apple and moved to Nairobi, Africa with her husband to fulfill their shared mission of making positive social change. If you want to make a positive social impact, you don't want to miss Katie's inspiring story. Katie, welcome to the call. Thanks, happy to be here. You know, there's, there are so many um, cool things about your background that I know people are going to get a lot of useful tips and information from, just how you navigate your career, how you navigate where you live, the adventures you've had in your life, and all the awards. I'd really like to start with asking you about TED. How is it that you became a TED Fellow?
1: Ah well, I would say a a lot of luck <laughs> uh, and and timing and all of the rest. So I think TED launched a fellows program um, in two thousand nine, maybe. I hope I'm getting that right. And um, they then, you know, a year or so later, had a TED Global in that they hosted in India, which was quite a big production uh, for them, and. They started the Ted Fellows program sort of with the rationale that I think a lot of the conference demographic was fairly was skewing older and wealthier uh, besides some invited speakers, and they wanted, young talent that was you know, inspired and working on interesting things around the world. And so they sort of put out a call for uh, what they called young world-changing innovators. Um, and at the time, I'd been living in India for three or four years. I had helped launch Acumen's energy portfolio, investing in off-grid energy companies. And so I think when they, when they came to India, they were looking for primarily fellows based in India, uh, since it's such a, a massive country and subcontinent and has a very entrepreneurial spirit so so that's how I ended up getting selected and and joined the TED fellows program
0: and it's been a a great resource for you over the years of inspiration and support
1: absolutely I think it's really a remarkable community of people like unlike any other I can imagine because as we move on in our our careers we tend to end up spending most of our time around people who are kind of like us to some extent. I mean, there's always diversity, but really big picture. You know, if you're a scientist, you hang out with scientists. If you're an artist, you hang out with artists. If you got an MBA, you end up having a lot of other friends who, uh, who work in business or got MBAs. And of course there's diversity in each of those subcategories, but the Ted Feltz poem is really remarkable in that it brings people together from every potential discipline, it feels like. And there are people from, I think, well over 50 countries who are in the TED Fellows program. So you also have that international diversity, socioeconomic diversity. And, you know, for for many of the fellows who are either artists or entrepreneurs, it's a tremendous support system for them and also helps them develop their business or develop their craft. In the last five years and when I was in a more bigger company environment, that was less what I was getting out of the Ted Phelps movement. It was more around inspiration and creativity. And it's always been for me a reminder of how fortunate I am and all of the sort of opportunity and support that I have and kind of pushing me to, in some ways, take more risks than I would otherwise Mm -hmm. because of that community.
0: That's an interesting point about the creativity I often ask uh, business people how they bring their creative selves to the workplace, and so many business people don't see themselves as creative. That's true. So, yeah, how how do you see yourself as creative within the context of business?
1: <sighs> well, I think I would, to some extent, fall into that same category of probably reluctance to claim creativity as a business person, it feels like trying to have a bit of humility. It feels kind of bold for, for at least many business people. I think uh, people who've worked in business uh, to say, Oh, I'm being so creative right now because they're, you know, on the continuum of creativity, we feel like, well, the, artist creating the 10 meter high statue in um, you know, in the ocean or something (laughs) is that's creativity, not, you know, what I'm doing at my computer, uh, nine to five, but I guess how I at times have felt like I I've been able to bring a lot of creativity into working in a, in a business environment has been when, you know, when you end up having, constraints that you have to work around and you have to move forward and you need to build something, uh, that's when you start, you know, creating is building something that doesn't exist. And so I guess, you know, companies are doing that day in and day out. And at least in my last job in a business environment, when I was leading a clean energy team inside of Apple, we faced this, we had this very ambitious goal of, Transitioning Apple's supply chain to renewable energy. That is a very tangible goal where you were talking about megawatts of solar and wind power installed in the ground and kilowatt hours um, of energy consumed. So there's a technical component. There's a really strong economic component of how do we do this in a business viable way where you have to get really creative about how you structure deals and investments so that you can prove to your CFO that it makes economic sense. And you have to be creative in how you convince others inside the company and outside the company to come along with your vision. So when the path
0: forward is not really clear, that's when you pull on your creativity.
1: Yeah. And I I think it's harder in a business environment, probably, and and that all companies could do work on how you keep your employees and your teams uh, kind of in a creative mindset, I guess. Yeah, that really good
0: point. Then some of the other acknowledgements, or some of the other activities that you've got going on, is you were a young global leader, or you are, with the World Economic Forum, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. an advisor to Acumen, and like you said, you were a program lead for um, manufacturing clean energy at Apple.
1: Mm-hmm. How did you start out your career? I took a gap year before between high school and college, um, and. This was pretty uncommon for American kids to take gap years, taking a year off. Um, I think it's pretty uncommon for a, for parents to allow their kids to do it. So kudos to my mom. Um, and I went and I lived in Nepal for the year. And this is like pre-cell phone era, writing letters home, living in a village 18 hours from Kathmandu. Uh, it was a very formative experience for me. Um, and so I went into my college years. Fairly grounded in knowing I wanted to work on issues of global poverty um, and economic development um, and that I was skeptical of a lot of the traditional approaches to development. And so I studied economics and I got a fellowship coming out, a fellowship in public service, a John Gardner fellow. John Gardner is an incredible mm-hmm. uh, of has an incredible mind and legacy uh, that he's left on leadership and, uh, and renewal, we could have a whole conversation about that. Um, but I had, I had to stay in America, I had to spend the fellowship year in the US, but for any public service organization. And I, I got an option to go and work for the chief economist for Africa at the World Bank, which is the wow. path or the kind of checking the box this is what you're supposed to do maybe if you want to work in economic development even if you don't necessarily agree with everything that the World Bank might do and then I found this tiny organization at the time called Acumen Fund it was called and it was you know there was like a a a half-page article in Time magazine about Jacqueline Novogratz the founder and I got really intrigued by the the mission of the of the fund and I ended up going there uh, to a place that no one had ever heard, heard I knew had ever heard of. And every t- and it's a harder model to explain. So uh, anytime anyone asked me what I did, I would say, Oh, I work for this social venture capital fund that's making equity and debt investments in companies that are serving the poor. And we're trying to prove that you can have a greater impact on poverty through actually treating Uh, the poor with dignity as customers, rather than beneficiaries of your charity and aid. That was where I started my career, was basically investing in early stage companies. And I was focused on energy, water, and agriculture investments. So it was a great combination of using business models and financial investment structures to, uh, to try to serve the underserved.
0: And social impact is an aim, a goal, a mission for so many people who listen to this podcast. How is it that you got from
1: there to, didn't you go to Africa next? In college, in university days, I, I spent a lot of time focused in Africa on uh, a lot of my coursework. And I studied abroad in Uganda at Makere University in Kampala, Uganda. And then I went back and did my Uh, thesis on commercial microfinance in Uganda. So my college years, I was very focused on Africa, but then actually after joining Acumen, I was struck by how much activity there was in sort of what's called the social enterprise space in India and how much entrepreneurial spirit there was there. And there was less at the time activity. This is sort of 2005, maybe five, six. There was less of that in, in Africa, at least where Acumen was investing in East Africa. And I got just so curious. And, and so i I decided to move to India. I moved to India with Acumen. I'd never set foot in India before. And I agreed to at least go for two years. I went for four in the end. I totally fell in love with the country. Then I spent four years in India, uh, primarily with Acumen.
0: Mm, Okay. Where did you live in India?
1: I lived in a city called Hyderabad. Uh, It's a lesser known Indian city of 8 million people. At least it was 8 million at the time. I'm sure it's more now. And it's in the center of Fairly central in India. It used to be a Muslim kingdom, and it's about 40% Muslim. Uh, The rest are primarily Hindu. It was a great experience of India because it it was a city that had far less expats, um, especially at least in areas where I lived. It was also a city that was having a tech boom, sort of like... Mm. uh, Bangalore, but um, so you were seeing India change before your eyes, but it was out in Hyderabad was a sister city, kind of like Minneapolis and St. Paul. It was Hyderabad and Segundabad, and then this kind of high-tech city started coming up and they called it Cyberbad. So it's like Hyderabad, (laughs) Hyderabad and Cyberbad were the three cities there. That's
0: funny. Yeah, uh, it's been so long since I've been to India, long before any of this occurred, and I wonder, if from your perspective, how, what's it like to be in such a traditional culture and mm. see this new culture just emerge before your eyes?
1: Um, gosh, it's a good question. You know, India has a magical way of making everything it absorbs from the outside it makes it Indian in its own way. Whether that's the food, like when Chinese food comes or McDonald's comes and all the rest, it'll it'll all have its like very Indian flair. It happened a lot with religion where, you know, I think when Christianity came to India, you know, a country which was primarily Hindu and has, I always get this number wrong. I don't know if it's like 30 million deities in Hindu religion, I might be missing a zero there. Um, and so when the Christians showed up and said, you know, no, you should, you should worship Jesus, the Hindus were like, sure, why not? One more. <laughs> uh, so I think the same is true to some extent with, you know, any of the you know outside business that came in. I, I mean, it provided a lot of much-needed jobs because India. And as with many other worlds, will continue to struggle with like a massive population boom and lots of young people and lots of poverty and the need to try to absorb that. I think kind of subcultures were created probably around some of the like call center and BPO campuses that were kind of set up, but it, it really took advantage of of India's like strong education system and strong kind of quantitative capabilities um, of, a lot of a lot of young people.
0: So for some people who haven't traveled very much outside the U.S., you know, if you're U.S. or haven't traveled outside their own country very much, how is it that you took these big steps to Africa and to India from the U.S.?
1: I attribute it, attribute it to a, a few different uh, things. One is I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is a pretty global city, just given the kind of international presence there. I think the biggest factor really was the influence of my, my father. My father passed away when I was young. I was eight years old when he died. After he went to law school in the late 60s, he lived in Ethiopia. for He did the Peace Corps, which was pretty oh, hard to do yeah. in the 60s. He lived in Ethiopia for three years, and then he traveled all through East Africa and then overland through Iran and into Pakistan and India. And we still have these like um, American express uh, letters that he would, that he sent back to his parents that, you know, those letters that then fold into the, to create yes. an envelope. Um, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And then we grew up in DC and DC has a big Ethiopian community and some of his good friends from those days were there. So I guess I, I knew maybe more through the stories than reality because eight years old is is pretty young, but I knew that that had been such an important experience for him and maybe some of the happiest years of his life, my mom at least has said. So that probably, I guess, always had that left this um, seeking in me to understand what his experiences were like and in a way get to know him through having those types of experiences myself. So yeah, I would say it was very personal in that, in that sense. And then just the curiosity about all there is in the world to see and explore.
0: Now let's go back to your career and how you navigated then from acumen and then back to graduate school at Stanford.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I went went back for round two, Um, but that primarily because i mean i'm not going to lie i was very conflicted about going to to get an mba <laughs> i i had a great existential crisis about it. it you know i saw both sides of the debate around this is an absurd amount of money even if you're getting a lot on scholarship and all of the rest it's not really necessary like you're not learning a this hard skill two years is a long time not to be doing anything useful and good for the world. I could tell you all 57 reasons why, why I thought it was me, you know, selling out or something like that. But on the flip side, I also saw the value in going back to school after you've worked for a number of years, you really get getting to be in that academic sandbox again and getting, you know, you're making an investment in yourself that you value a lot more than when you're in undergrad and just, uh, you know, you don't, you don't really fully appreciate how valuable that education is. Uh, And I ended up choosing to go back to Stanford over, over other places because of Stanford's strong, like entrepreneurial spirit and focus on, on innovation and social innovation, as well as it was one of the rare um, programs where I could also get an MS in environmental engineering, basically at the same time, um, in only about two and a half years. So, the chance to both go to a, a business school that felt very aligned with my values and to get that technical degree alongside uh, was very compelling. So ultimately, I, I felt very sad to leave India. I felt like I wasn't running away from India. I was running towards an opportunity. Mm-hmm. To go a
0: little bit deeper with your career and your expertise.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: So then you, is it, uh, you went to Apple then after... I did, but
1: that makes it seem so um, straightforward. <laughs> oh, it's never very straightforward, yeah. is it? Yeah. No, I tried many different, I, you know, that's also the nice thing about about grad school is you get to, to experiment with a bunch of different things um, at that stage in your career. So I spent one summer at McKinsey, the management consulting firm. I spent another summer at a sustainable investment firm in London called Generation Investments. Um, I spent almost a year with a, a friend and classmate working on a business idea to do biomass power in Kenya. And we came to Kenya uh, to do market research and everything. So it was a circuitous route, uh, I guess, uh, I would say. How do you stay optimistic
0: when you're not sure what the path forward is? <sighs>
1: That is a good question. I would say I'm a, what's, what's the right word for this? Pragmatic optimist, or, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are more optimistic than me. (laughs) I like to surround myself with those people. Maybe that's one way I stay optimistic. Uh, You have friends and uh, collaborators who, who are more optimistic than I am. I don't think you can work on topics of social change Environmental sustainability and to some extent technology, if you're not deep down an optimist because there's so much data and experiences and facts that tell you we're never going to curb climate change or you know we're we're never going to bring the one point two billion people who don't have access to electricity you know into modern electricity in a reasonable amount of time. There's, there's you know, plenty of um, reasons to just kind of throw up your hands. I, yeah, I guess deep down, knowing that ultimately it's a matter of human ingenuity and grit that will probably get us most of the way there.
0: Mm, yes. And you're focusing on those parts of the world where it's so evident that people could benefit from change.
1: Yeah, and on the individual level, and then it scales up from there. I mean, people are, you know, talent is universal and opportunity is not. And most of the reasons why, you have people still living in poverty, you have uh, really weak infrastructure, you have environmental degradation. It's when, people's opportunity to improve their lives is curbed in some way. So trying to just unlock those barriers, that's the most interesting work, I think. Oh my gosh, yes. So then you go to Apple. And
0: how how is it that you ended up at Apple after taking a few little tours through other companies and other experiences?
1: Yeah, this is where the honest truth is that you can always look back on your life path or decisions, and create a very nice story about it, and make it you know easy for you know to explain it um, when at the time it doesn't seem so obvious. But I think some of what was going on is over the course of my time in 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 business school, I both probably became even more concerned about climate change than I was going in, um, given just the facts and the education I was getting. And then also the technical expertise I was gaining from my, from my degree and the need, feeling the need to address that at scale. Uh, So knowing I wanted to see, to feel what scale felt like. Um, And then after having been in my prior roles, more in an investor position? Well, I'd been an investor in companies. And it felt at times like that was too arm's length away from the action for me, even though this was investing in early stage companies where I was doing a lot of operating support at the time back at Acumen. So I wanted to be in an operating company. I wanted to work at scale on issues of energy and the environment. And I guess I am also drawn to doing things that haven't been done before. And so when I saw this role to do clean energy at Apple, I thought, well, this sounds weird, but I kind of like weird and uh, I want to see what this is all about. And, you know, Apple is one of the most innovative companies in the world. So if I could do clean energy work at scale there, that could be really interesting. Again, at the time, I also had lots of reservations, Uh, you know, is this greenwashing and all the rest, but I just applied for a role that I found on the internet. Maybe it was on LinkedIn or something. I applied to the position and I went in for for interviews. And the position that I started in was actually to be a contractor. It wasn't even a full-time role. So it wasn't the kind of, it wasn't high profile or or sort of through an MBA recruiting cycle at Stanford or anything like that. Um, I did convert to full-time after a few months, but there was no guarantee of that when I started. Uh, It was a bit of a a leap at the time, and I didn't know if it was going to work out. And I, I mean, fast forward, I had an incredible uh, five-year run at Apple that I feel very grateful for. So five Um,
0: years. And how did you, I know when I, when I first talked to you, you were concerned about navigating the politics of a big company from a small company. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give someone who's considering going to a large company and navigating that internal
1: structure. Mm. All I can do is share my experience rather than know whether it, um, it has totally translatable lessons, but I would say, I mean the, the table stakes is to do really good work and to make sure that the quality of your work is really strong and you're doing things that, that kind of fit into that category of some degree of competence, some degree of learning uh, and impact. Uh, you know, raising your hand for things that you think are going to be both, you know, high impact for the company as well as you're going to learn and you're going to be able to demonstrate your value. But I think an important lesson is, and I recommend Jeffrey Pfeffer's work of past Power, the book Power. Um, I took his class in business school, but one of, the, one of the things that I remember from that class is doing good work as you get further on in your career is not enough. It's just table stakes. And you need to make sure people know that you're doing good work. And that feels very uncomfortable, um, I think for many of us, especially for women, I will say, but needing to make sure that people more senior to you are aware of what you're working on and the value that you're bringing, Um, because they're busy and they're not going to, of course, they're gonna be glad you did what you did, but they're maybe not gonna pay attention. So that was one. Um, I think finding mentors um, within the company is really important people to help you navigate because, you know, Apple is an, is, has its own culture, but every company uh, has, its, has its idiosyncrasies and, and political dynamics and having senior people who can help you figure that out. But needing to use those people's times judiciously and not be, feel like you're entitled to that. So being very prepared for those conversations and, and finding ways to be helpful to those mentors. Those are some, of, some ideas off the top of my head.
0: Great, great, thank you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So now it's taking us up to the current and you are back in Africa. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about how you decided to leave, leave Apple and go, because that was a really big decision for you.
1: Yeah, it was. It was a big decision. It was a hard decision. Um, so, you know, the, in my mind when I, over the years, had pictured my my life and my career, I had always pictured it being primarily overseas and living in emerging markets. It was clear to me from early experiences in Botswana and Nepal, Uganda, India, that I feel very alive and energized and and I get a lot of meaning out of living and working in, in, in pl- this part of the world, in these types of markets. So that had always been kind of part of my long-term view. And I'm lucky enough to have a, a husband and partner who has al- also um, lived in a number of parts of the world and also uh, sort of had that vision. But it was very hard in some ways to hang on to that when I was in a job that I actually did really love um, at Apple and felt like I, I got a lot of meaning and purpose out of and learned a tremendous amount. It wasn't, we, for us, it was always a question of when, not if we would make this move, but it starts as you, get, you know, as you get older and further along in your career and as parents get older and your family situation gets more complicated, it's harder to just to jump around the globe So we knew that if we wanted to make this happen, it was probably going to need to happen soon. So ultimately, I would be lying if I didn't say that I had a fair amount of anxiety before telling my boss, who um, is a VP at at Apple who reports directly to Tim Cook, um, that that I was leaving. I felt sad to be saying goodbye to that team and sad to be walking away from that work that felt very... Rewarding, hard but rewarding. Uh, but I also knew that. Um, well, first of all, it's Apple. <laughs> it's going to be just—they're going to be just fine uh, without me. And there is a there are a long line of clean energy professionals who would kill for that job, the job that I had. I and mean, It was just a, a great privilege to get to do that work. I knew deep down there are less people who might be willing to make this type of move that I'm making now. And my skills and capabilities, whatever I think I might be capable of, matter more here. And I can do more here, uh, especially because I'm willing to make certain sacrifices economically and, and, and otherwise to work in a place like this. And don't get me wrong, I, Nairobi is a, tr- is a phenomenal place to live. So that's a whole other conversation. But most people who live in you know, San Francisco or the Bay Area wouldn't necessarily make that move.
0: And so tell us a little bit about what it's like to live in
1: Nairobi. It is rainy season in in Kenya right now. It's the long rain, so it's Mm. not totally unusual, I guess, apparently, (laughs) uh, to have some hail. Okay, so Nairobi is sort of the the largest and most cosmopolitan city in East Africa. It's a city of technically 3 million people, but I think if if you consider kind of the outer metropolitan area, you, it would be much larger. It's extremely pleasant weather-wise because it's about 6,000 feet elevation. Uh, so going running is a challenge, which is why they have such great runners in Kenya. Um, but it makes for, you know, really, really pleasant climate, really, uh, you know, still fairly green and lush compared to other East African cities. There is just a great energy and hustle in this city in terms of you know people at at all levels of society very kind of motivated and moving like i i've joked that i tried when i first got here to go out and go running at dawn before the roads were busy and all the rest and there's no such thing because people are already hustling before dawn uh, to get to work and to do uh, to run their businesses and all of the rest and it's really become quite cosmopolitan uh, as a hub for East Africa. So you have Africans from all over the continent working here. You do have a lot of expats, probably more than I I would necessarily want in, a, in a, living in a foreign city, because expats, we do tend to try to group together a little too much in foreign cities, in my opinion but you have, it is the home of the UN as well. And a lot of embassies and all the rest, so you have kind of the whole diplomatic world. Um, But then you have a lot of, a big startup scene in Nairobi. So they call it the Silicon Savannah. Oh, Um, oh, awesome. (laughs) That very cute. And it's very true. I mean, there is a ton of software entrepreneurship happening here, you know, time will tell. Uh, how these companies fare and everything, but it, I think that also that culture of taking a bit of risk and and building will will benefit the city and the country
0: so it it was
1: a little bit behind
0: uh, India in terms of attracting entrepreneurial talent and investments, but it sounds like it 's catching up very quickly
1: yeah, it is catching up, I think you know ultimately one of the hard things is that, you know, India, it's like 1.3 billion people in one country. It has incredible complexity and diversity within the, within the country. And obviously, you know, some States in India are bigger than most countries in the world. It has multiple languages, but all, you know, ultimately you have one regulatory framework in India. And so you can grow and scale in a way there that is still hard in I think most of Africa and East Africa, because Kenya is only 45 million people. It's supposed to double by 2030, which is um, an important wow. trend to keep an eye on. Africa as a whole is supposed to double from 1 billion people to 2 billion people by 2030. Excuse me, 2050. Let me correct myself. Mm-hmm. And Kenya's gonna double by 2050, um, I I misspoke. But you know, ultimately, if you're a business that's trying to scale in, say East Africa, you've got different regulatory frameworks in Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Ethiopia, Tanzania, et cetera. It's a, it is more challenging in that regard um, and corruption and bureaucracy being another major challenge. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. The, the pictures that you showed of uh, Nairobi and the extreme poverty for mm-hmm. half the population in Nairobi is heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, it really is. It's and it's really complicated. Yes, fifty to sixty percent of, of Nairobi residents live in informal settlements and slums. The housing is one of the big four priorities for um, for Kenya in this next kind of uh, ter- presidential term, um, and there's a lot of pressure on that, but. It is, it is really complicated. And slums play a role in cities and societies around the world, usually as just the first stopping off point for someone who's immigrated from or migrated from rural areas or from more vulnerable conditions mm-hmm. to get on their feet, get a bed, get a job, and get out. But in many parts of the world, and... Nairobi included it's become decades of society and economy that that goes on within within the slum i heard a data point recently that kibera which is sort of the largest and most famous slum in nairobi i would say um of potentially a, a million people data varies in terms of what uh, the population may be, um, but if it's about a million people, only about 60% of Kibera residents actually leave for work every day. So 40% are actually employed or engaged in economy within uh, the, that neighborhood rather than outside of. So it's very hard to, to completely kind of relocate that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I actually have made the comparison, I don't know if it's a fair comparison, but to on some, uh, at a different level, but to the challenge of homelessness in San Francisco. There's a lot of money that's put towards solving that problem. And we don't see much result. And, so, and it's the same in some of the urban informal settlements around the world. There's a lot of complexity around human behavior that needs to go in needs to be taken into consideration.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What do you see as next steps for you as you navigate your way through Kenya and Nairobi?
1: Ah, well, you are catching me at an important moment of transition. (laughs) And now it will be recorded for posterity. (laughs) Oh, Um, okay. So I am advising Omidyar Network, which is an impact investment firm. They've deployed about $1.2 billion in the last 10 years in a number of different sectors. Um, I'm helping them build their energy investment portfolio, so investing in energy companies here in, in East Africa. And it's a, it's a phenomenal organization. I have a lot of admiration for them. I am also spending a lot of my time focused on urban infrastructure and technology along the lines of of what I was saying before with Africa going from 1 billion people to 2 billion people by 2050. It also is expected to go from 50% urban to 80% urban, um, which means by 2050, there'll be 1.2 billion people living in cities in Africa, whether it's Nairobi or um, tier two, tier three, smaller cities and towns. And the infrastructure is completely unprepared to absorb that influx of population. And we're at a moment in time where climate change is gonna have a disproportionately painful impact, I think in this part of the world and also on on the poor. So there's a need for a low carbon uh, pathway (laughs) to urbanization. And we're at a moment in history where we actually do have a lot of technologies that can solve some of these problems or that can, that can allow cities to grow in a much more much more sustainable way. So I'm spending a few months just going deep on, on that topic. I'm advising some startup companies that may be in, you know, areas of energy, water, waste, transport, and mobility. And I'm doing some writing and research with a couple Kenyan co-conspirators here. And I'm trying to see if there are private sector solutions and opportunities to deploy more technology to solve some of these problems. And I don't know yet what's going to be possible given some of the policy and government challenges that are here um, and some, some solutions that will just have to come from policy and government rather than private sector. So it is a time of exploration for me, I guess I would say.
0: It's a quagmire. And thank goodness we've got you in there. I can hear you sorting it out, kind of organizing your thoughts, organizing the problems and finding the path forward.
1: Right. It's right. very,
0: it's very inspiring. It's such a big, such a big problem. So for the person who's listening, listening, I imagine they've got two questions on their mind. One is, I want to work for a company that has a positive social impact. What advice would you give that person?
1: Hmm. Um, Well, first off, and I hope I don't offend anyone by saying this, but I think that we're living in an age where a bunch of companies that are just companies are claiming that they're changing the world in some tremendously positive way. And I think we need to call a bit of BS on some of that, which doesn't mean you can't be proud of what the company does, but I have to say that after so many years living in the Bay Area, companies that that claim that they're changing the world and solving the world's most pressing problems that are, you know, making high-end juice or doing dry cleaning delivery, you know, you have to be honest with yourself about what that means. Um, And I think you have to be willing to make some amount of personal sacrifice to either get the learning and experience that you need for it um like it doesn't come for free you don't get to like have a super high paying high status job and feel like you're solving some fundamental issues of either poverty or environment and not have either taken some amount of risk or some amount of you know what i'm gonna take this really low paying job for a while and I'm going to learn so much and whatever it might be. So you need to be thoughtful about what risks you're willing to take or what sacrifices you're willing to make, but that would be one. And I guess what goes hand in hand with that is you need to know yourself in order to navigate any career, but I think also a career where you want to work in, in business and feel like you're having a, you know, meaningful impact, positive impact in the world. So that is something you can never start that sooner. And it's a lifelong process. Gosh, those are the first things that come to mind. And then, you know, the world is big and there are so many sectors out there and so many also sort of s- skills and capabilities that one can focus on. And so, again, that knowing oneself is important because that's when you – that helps you narrow down. Uh, it can otherwise be, you know, very, very overwhelming and, and you can ping pong back to, into to too many things. Um, so those are the first things that jumped to mind in the answer to that question, but I'm sure I could come up with more. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you.
0: And for the person, cause I, I do know quite a few people too, who had maybe an earlier experience of living overseas or having a year abroad. Now they've got some work experience under their belt and they want to go back abroad and work abroad again. What advice would you give them? How do they find these jobs?
1: Yeah, I would say, I mean, that's when you're really useful, right? When you've actually developed skill, you have skills and experiences that uh, allow you to both like manage bigger teams and impart those skills um, in local markets, but it's also harder. Um, You know, I remember I had my first boss uh, who had worked at McKinsey for many years, my first boss at Acumen, and he's just was such a McKinsey brain, how his mind worked. And it was always in like two by two matrices. And I remember he told me when I said I wanted to move to India, he's like, well, your opportunity costs are never as low as they are today. (laughs) That's (laughs) a way to think about your life. Uh, Okay. So meaning that making big leaps and and walking away from whatever your current job is when you're 23 is very different than than when you're in your mid-30s. There you, have, you feel like you have so much more to lose. And I think it's why so many people have those types of international experiences or adventurous experiences when they're in their 20s mm-hmm. and then, and then never manage to again. And it could be because their preferences change and their priorities change. And that's perfectly fine. I don't think that... Uh, the expectation is everyone should do this, but um, is unfortunate if you still have that kind of deep yearning, but you don't do it because of the momentum that's built up or the the fear that comes from walking away from a certain salary or a certain title or um, whatever it may be. And I would definitely say that some of those fears were there for me. Um, so that's one. And then the second is... Some intentionality around it. And it's hard to recruit from across the world. But one of my other good friends from business school um, recently moved out here and she's running a, a school network in Kenya um, after being at Davida for many years, learning you know, ops and being a a really strong operator and general manager. And now she's, you know, running a ops for a school network and she did that recruiting from afar. So it's so much easier now than it was before. I mean, with, with internet, with video conferencing, with, you know, the ability to fly over and, um, an interview. So I would say that it more is also in that kind of later, mid-career, it's, it's also that knowing oneself, what do you want to do? And that helping you narrow down because you don't have, it's hard to look for a job when you have, when you are also doing a full-time job. It's even harder when you're looking for a job on the other side of the world. In my case, I was willing to take the, the leap and the risk. I was also doing it with my partner, which, which helped, but you need to figure out, I guess, if you, if you're willing to leave your current job and spend time exploring? It takes a certain amount of confidence and conviction (laughs) at times, Um, or do you want to lock in that opportunity? And maybe you have to because you have a family you're providing for and all the rest. But I think um, there's no shortage of opportunities uh, to make this change later in one's career if you're intentional about it.
0: Thank you, thank you so much. Just two more questions, the wisdom part of this show. What's one thing you know now you wish you knew earlier? This is just one thing that comes to mind.
1: Other people think about you and what you're doing far less, if at all, than you think they do. So when we you know, worry about what other people think or what will other people think of our uh, professional choices No one's really paying attention. They're busy thinking about themselves just the way we all overthink our own lives and our own decisions. So the quicker we can free ourselves from at least that kind of mental handicap of, oh, what will other people think I'm making the right choice, Um, the better our decisions will be. That's perfect.
0: What habit or mantra do you have that
1: helps you stay focused? Hmm. Well, you know, a nice thing about moving continents and countries and cities, and it's a bit of a cheap trick, I guess, but is you get to reinvent your habits or you get to get rid of some habits and start new ones. That is a lot harder to do when you're already in a routine and living a a life. But I've gotten into a few habits. One is I've started to do 10 to 20 minutes of writing every morning. And I'm also been forcing myself to do a bit of a private blog. The habit I'm trying to form there is getting increasingly comfortable with my own voice and also with putting opinions and ideas out in the world, even if they're not perfect. Um, I think many of us who may be a bit of overachievers uh, you know, feel like um, we have to perfect our work and I'm someone who always feels like, oh, I don't know if I know enough to really say uh, this is true or that is true, and um, and I, I think that's a good good tendency in uh, in general, but I maybe take it too far, and so it's been a a habit in trying to force myself to take my half-baked ideas and make them a little more fully baked, and then put them out into the world. So um, that's also helping me focus rather than sit around with a bunch of partial thoughts and conclusions
0: yes mulling around in your head Mm -hmm. cluttering up your eyesight so how if people want to follow your private blog is it open for people to follow or is (laughs) that is that why it's private
1: (laughs) no it actually is i intentionally put it somewhere that would be public and just haven't told people about it but maybe we'll just do that it's on Medium, which is not a very low stakes way to put to a blog. I think I call it Katie Hill Chronicles on Medium.
0: Hmm? Oh, nice. Well, send me the link and I will put it in the show notes if you want. Okay. If, you, if you decide you, you want to change your mind, we can cut I this need part to out.
1: At some point, I need to make a leap at some point.
0: <laughs> I know the feeling. Thank you so much for sharing your um, history and your story and what inspires you with us. I look forward to having you on the show in a few months and see how you've progressed and what wow. you're up
1: to. Thanks. Well, you have been a, a tremendous support and partner for me over the years. Um, so I'm, I'm also grateful for, for all the time we've spent together.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. Well, enjoy your day and thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you. Have a good day there too. I'm Cinder Niemela and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.